Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and we will of course be checking in with Adam Boileau to uh, have a chat about all of the week's security news in just a moment and then it will be time for this week's sponsor interview with Haroon Mir, the founder of Thinkst Canary. Uh, and this is an absolutely terrific sponsor interview this week. Uh, we're talking all about Thinkst's new uh, credit card Canary token uh, that they support and yeah, you can get a perfectly valid credit card number from Thinkst that will alert you uh, when someone tries to charge it, right? So you can put that in a store of credit card numbers if someone steals it and then you know it runs a test transaction against it, you're gonna get alerted. Uh, but there are a lot of interesting angles to this thing that I didn't think of and Haroon will be along soon uh, to talk through all of that. I guess the TLDR is that uh, if you're a bank that issues credit cards, you should get in touch with Thinkst and offer them uh, the ability to distribute Canary credit card numbers with your bank identification number and that way credit card crews when they figure it out they won't want to run cards that use your bin uh, so that is a hell of an incentive to actually partner up with Thinkst on that so that's an interesting one that conversation is coming up later but it is news time now with Adam Boileau and Adam, the top story this week is that the North Korean government, you know, I mean, we've known that they were doing crypto theft for a long time and, uh, you know, attacks against banks and, you know, things like that. Looks like they're broadening their revenue raising uh, uh, cyber attacks these days to include ransomware. And what's interesting here is they're deploying apparently some homegrown stuff that they've developed, but they're also, from the looks of things, acting as affiliates with, uh, you know, some of the Russian crews. This is very interesting stuff. Yes, we've seen lots of, you know, kind of financially motivated crimes and, you know, the accusations that North Korea, you know, is capable of gaining a lot of foreign currency revenue through uh, doing financial crimes and, and stealing people's, you know, doing ransoming, steal cryptocurrency, that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, seeing them specifically doing it through hospitals and as affiliates for other ransomware operations, like that's pretty low. Uh, the uh, US uh, authorities have put out, a, uh, you know, a release talking about the way that they've been able to attribute uh, some of this. And it looks very much like tracking cryptocurrency that's gone through North Korea's, you know, various tumbling mechanisms and then seeing it right back out there being used for running infrastructure to then, you know, do ransomware to hospitals. Like that's a, yeah, that's gross. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's something I've mentioned a while ago, uh, you know, ransomware was never going to just be a Russia problem, right? Yeah. Because you've got other jurisdictions that won't extradite uh, criminals. But, you know, in the case of North Korea, this is like a state-directed activity, which makes it, uh, you know, somehow even more horrible when, than yes. when it's, you know, uh, when it's just criminals acting of their own volition. But it looks like, you know, they may have attacked uh, some hospitals in South Korea, also the United States. And you just sort of think, well, what's your policy response when you're dealing with a pariah state like this already, right? Like, you know, it's not like, can you even sanction North Korea anymore? Exactly. Yeah, I don't know what you what you do. We've seen you know sanctions against there's some Russians we'll talk about in a moment that have been uh, sanctioned. Yeah, like what do you what do you do against North Korea that hasn't already been done? And I, I mean, I, you know, maybe some defend forward. I don't well, know. yeah, I think some. I think releasing the hounds is the uh, you know the obvious thing. Uh, to do here, but I think it's a, it's a little bit more difficult to stage offensive operations against a state-backed crew. I think these, uh, you know, yeah. these Russian guys, they're not actually operating, uh, you know, from within a bureaucracy that protects them. They don't really have, you know, company-mandated uh, OPSEC guidelines or department-mandated OPSEC guidelines or whatever. Whereas when you're dealing with, a, you know, actually a state-directed and, 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 and controlled group, I think it's going to be a little bit trickier to push back on them in the same way. You know, I don't think it's... 
I don't think it's not worth doing if you can go in and hack some wallets and steal some of that money back and just generally give them a hard time. Um, you know, that that's obviously a good thing. But I, I don't think it's um, going to be as successful a recipe here. No, no, I, I agree. And I guess we've also talked a bit in the past about the importance of trust in the crime world, right? And that you can go after the forums, you can, you know, sow distrust in a state-controlled operation, but you don't really have that option because everyone just goes to the meetings anyway in yeah. person. Like, it's not like Ukrainians versus Russians in a forum somewhere that you can kind of, you know, go and seed some conflict, watch it kick off. Yeah, and I mean, stealing their money, so what, right? Like, they'll just go get more money like it won't really yeah, inconvenience yeah. them when they're you know they're state state paid employees uh, i've seen a few people uh complaining on twitter uh john hillquist is is one of them from uh you know mandiant which is i guess he's now i guess he now works for google um <laughs> but you know he was saying oh why isn't this getting more attention well i think the reason is because we don't really have many case studies here like we don't know which organizations were affected and how badly. So I think this one is still a developing story. And I guess over coming weeks and months, we might actually see this rise as a bit of an issue as the as the sort of scope of the activity becomes more clear. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wanted to see more juicy details and more information, more, you know, specifics. And I mean, some of the, the data put out by, you know, NSA and FBI and their various releases, you know, had technical IOCs, but, you know, that's only so interesting, right? Unless you're in a, in a you know, position like Google Mandiant, where you've got the visibility to kind of pull that information together from IOCs internally, whereas for the rest of us, you know, humble pundits, uh, we yeah. would like to see more more details. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. Uh, and yeah, you just mentioned it, but the US and UK have sanctioned uh, a bunch of members of the TrickBot crew. And interestingly enough, in the announcement of the sanctions, they said that there were government links, right? Links between the TrickBot crew and the Russian government. But the statement is so vague as to be useless. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to say whether they are implying, you know, just alignment of, you know, kind of intent. No, they say, they say they're linked and that they received tasking from the FSB. But like... They don't say how they arrived at that conclusion. And look, I understand protect sources and methods and all of that, but it doesn't really do much to help. You know, and this is something that with Tom Uren in Seriously Risky Biz in the work that he does and, and the podcast that I do with him, this is something we've talked about, which is trying to get your hands around exactly what the links between uh, uh, the Russian government and some of the criminals operating there. It's actually very, very hard. It's not like when you're observing uh, some of the contractor-like behavior that happens in China, where you can see this crew is definitely doing stuff for the government and definitely doing this financially motivated stuff over here it's 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 very different and it's all this sort of stuff where someone puts out a statement saying oh yes they're linked to the government and receive tasking and th you know that that's all they say which is not helpful <laughs> yeah because I mean, you're not clear if it's like they give kickbacks to somebody and as a result they do favors for somebody or whether you know it's a like you know they get an email from you know tasking at fsb.ru <laughs> and you know and it's super clear or you know we just don't yeah we don't see the specifics but as you say there was a lot of you know russia is a strange place and anytime you know you read someone's analysis of how things actually work in russia there's just so much kind of backstory and understanding and context that oh it hurts it's, yeah. It, it, uh, yeah it makes your brain hurt like i've i've tried before and i just it was there's too much going on yeah. Right? And when you actually try to understand the Russian undergrad, I, I, I'm happy for that to just remain a black hole to me. 
Yes, and we, you know, we are pretty reliant on, you know, being a native Russian speaker and having, you know, lived in those communities, you understand it a lot better than than us outsiders do. Because, yeah. yeah, it's just, like, my head hurts every time we read one of those, like, deep dive pieces, uh, you know, about the all the moving parts and people, you yeah. know, even in the criminal underground, let alone mixing in state, you know, state stuff. Yeah, so the, the US and UK governments say the trick, you know, mem- some members of the TrickBot gang are associated with and maintain links to Russian intelligence uh, services, quote, from whom they've likely received tasking. And I don't know, are they lunch buddies? And someone said, hey, we don't like the Olympic Committee. Go, you know, go cause some drama there. Like, is that tasking? Or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, or is this a paid contract? Was there a favor exchange? Like, we, we just don't know, right? But, you know, sanctions against TrickBot, I'm not going to complain. I'll take it. Yes, exactly. And they've sanctioned, what, like five or six people uh, that are involved with TrickBot and the various kind of prior lineage that got there, the Dyer crew, etc. And then, I mean, even TrickBot itself, the TrickBot, the group of people, doesn't necessarily use TrickBot, the malware anymore. Um, and there's other, you know, ransomware operations using different malware that is run by these people and, and so on and so forth. So, like, if you want to get to the point of deciding whether or not you could pay a ransom to someone or whether you're violating sanctions... What, yeah, I don't know how you how you would conclude you know, whether you are or aren't uh, from this information. Now, Catalan for us, uh, Catalan Kimpanu wrote this up for us, but uh, staying, staying with Russia, the Russian government is actually considering uh, introducing a, a law that would absolve uh, you know, criminal hackers from uh, any sort of criminal responsibility for doing patriotic hacks, right? Which, you know, I mean, it sounds big, bad, and scary, like they've got carte blanche to attack targets in the West. But when you think about it, hackers in the West aren't exactly worried about facing criminal sanction for doing the same thing to Russia. So I don't know. I don't. I, I think this is mostly symbolic. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the status quo is that if you're doing patriotic hacking in Russia and you don't, you know, go and, and hack Russians, you're probably fine anyway. Yeah. Like you may have to pay the appropriate bribes, but that's probably still the case, you know, even if, uh, you know, they pass some law that says you can. Uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, how many Western security researchers are like, well, you know, if I go hit North Korea or Iran, what's going to happen, right? I mean, no one's going to extradite me to Iran for it. So game on. Now this next one, Adam, it's sort of like the Olympics or the World Cup. Uh, but I think it rolls around every five years, which is it's time for the reauthorization of, uh, of the Section 702 surveillance power before it sunsets. Uh, you know, this is an important authorization that allows the United States to collect uh, intelligence on, on foreign persons. I remember well the last time this thing was going to sunset and um, politicians make noises about how they're going to rein it in and clamp down on it. But ultimately, I think this is an authorization that's just become too important to the core functions of the sort of US intelligence community and, and you know, the FBI and whatnot. So, like, I would be stunned if this stuff isn't reauthorized. But, you know, that said, you've got a lot of Republicans now in Congress who are very upset about, uh, uh, you know, certain Pfizer authorization, authorizations being used against, um, you know, people they're friendly with. So, yeah, I, you know, what's your, what, what's your thoughts here? You reckon they're going to just eventually you know, they will have to just say, okay, well, this is too important. We're going to renew it. I think you're right. Uh, it's too important. You know, the the piece that the Wired wrote up about it had a bunch of good examples of, uh, you know, the FBI kind of exceeding the intent of its authority or being a little bit fast and loose with how people query it. And, you know, the, you know, those examples are, you know, are good examples of misuse of, of the powers, but 
it's just too too important and yeah. you know, we may see some concessions around you know training people how to use it properly or more paperwork required maybe um, some better you know, oversight to catch maybe this better stuff oversight, before it happens. But I mean, the- yeah i mean that that's kind of where i think you know someone could focus productively as well if if you're a politician you might look at you know maybe trying to get rid of some of those edge cases of misuse cuz the bulk of it is not misuse right like the bulk of it is quite important stuff so i think that's the trick here yeah, and, and like every previous time, you know, someone important will get up in a closed committee where they can actually talk real talk and give the examples of some of the stuff that they have actually used it for and that will win everybody over. And, you know, there may be some rumbling around the edges, you know, like we talked about. But fundamentally, yeah, like being able to spy on foreigners, that's that's what America wants to do and that's what they would argue that they need to do. And, yeah, I don't see them turning it off. No, me neither, especially given the current climate. But uh, you never know, man, because there's some crazy politicians in the United States right now. So (laughs) let's see. Uh, Now we've got a write-up here from Andy Greenberg over at Wired about uh, the crypto tumbler or laundering service that is now preferred by North Korean uh, hackers, right? Because the one that they had been using got shuttered and sanctioned out of existence. Uh, So, you know, they're back up and running somewhere else now and he's got a feature up on that. Yeah, he's got a, an interview or conversation uh, with the operator of this new laundering service where uh, the North Koreans got onto it very early on. So it kind of came out of um, plausibly, you know, begat from a previous Tumblr. There's some similarities in the exact mechanisms of how it works. Um, but yeah, it was launched and then very, very quickly the North Koreans were using it to move, you know, tens, 25 million, whatever it was, uh, through that service, uh, shifting some of the coins straight from the Tumblr that this appears to have, you know, shared some lineage with. Uh, so North Korean's getting onto it, you know, being the early adopters of a brand new tumbling service, so they can just, you know, move a bit of money through and then someone will start another one, you know, in a month and they can use that too. And, you know, they can be ahead of researchers that are watching, you know, the wild addresses of known tumblers, et cetera, et cetera. Makes a whole bunch of sense. The guy who runs it, uh, I feel is probably in for a bad day in the future. Um, yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? Like if you're going to spring up a Tumblr, it's going to get used by like the North Koreas of the world, <laughs> the online mobsters of the world. Like that's who really wants this stuff. Like, I, I, you know, I know that there was this, you know, utopic, utopic vision of privacy for all and stuff, but ultimately the people who are most motivated to make use of those sort of privacy services you know, are crooks and horrible dictatorships, basically. And I mean, a Tumblr only really works if you have enough volume to hide the bad stuff in the good stuff. But if there is no good stuff and it's all bad stuff... But I don't know, maybe if you mix all of the bad stuff together, are you just sort of obfuscating the flow of the bad stuff? So once its origin has been obfuscated, is it still bad? I yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're mixing up, you know, Russian ransomware money with North Korean, you know, nuclear arms money, then yeah, I guess. But I think <laughs> the whole point is to break that sort of tracking yeah. flow, right? And, and being yeah. able to attribute, you know, the current holder to a particular crime. So, you know, I think you can, what I'm saying is I think you can launder just with bad money. Oh right? <laughs> uh, dear, it's a, it's a wild world. It really is. It is a wild world. Now, uh, I want to talk about this one. So John Grieg wrote it up for the record. Apparently, a couple of researchers in Turkey, and by the way, my God, you know, just what's happened in yeah. Turkey. I, I heard on the radio this morning that the the death toll um, in Turkey and Syria from the earthquake there has uh, passed 40,000. Um, so it's just an absolutely horrible situation. So uh, I do believe we have some listeners in Turkey and, you know, our, our, our best thoughts to you and um, – just horrible stuff. But anyway, a couple of researchers in Turkey have actually uh, written up some sort of 
recovery script for people who've been impacted in that um, uh, ES- ESXi args, like VMware ransomware attack that's been going around. Um, I, I only skim read this, but it looks like what this recovery script can do is maybe recover some volumes that the ransomware missed. Is that about right? Uh, so I had to rummage through it and it does appear that the ransomware didn't actually encrypt the underlying disk images because they're very big and so it'll be a slow yeah. process um, and it encrypted a bunch of the configuration that kind of describes the layout of those virtual disks so you can re- kind of recover that by looking at the disk images scanning through them generating a new config uh, and so these Turkish uh, guys blogged about it and then uh, someone at Scissor has written up a script version of it so they the Turkish guys had a process on the website it was pretty manual uh, a little bit error prone and fiddly but uh, it's now been turned into a script that you can use and yes in the occurrence that you got hit by that you can probably at least recover the contents of the disk you may not be able to straight up boot the VMs yeah so you can't you can't recover the machine to its running state but you should be able to at least get like you know your content yeah the contents of the drives yeah uh, should be recoverable um and yeah there's a script that you can give it a try if you did get hit with that now, turning our attention to the Pacific, and there's been a pretty sizable uh, ransomware attack against Tonga in the Pacific. Obviously, this is a you know this is a nation that is neighbor uh, neighbors to both Australia and New Zealand, and we have seen ransomware attacks targeting these these very small countries in the Pacific, which is a big concern uh, for Australia and New Zealand, who are yeah. you know sort of the the bigger countries in the region. Uh, you know, Tonga only has a population of about a hundred thousand people. You know, they don't have uh, you know a huge uh, purse that they can draw on to try to fix all of this stuff up. Uh, this was Tonga Communications, by the way. So this was a telco attack against a, a telco. This is the majority market share telco in Tonga, like for fixed line, for mobile, for internet access. Um, and it's like 300 people work there, right? So it's not a big organization, but it's super important, uh, you know, for a nation that, you know, is a very long way and a very long wet piece of fiber away from their neighbors and, uh, you know, trading partners and so on. So yeah, I would certainly hope that um, we will be helping them out uh, because, yeah, it's not like there's a massive base of cybersecurity expertise you know, in Tonga for them to draw on. Joe Cox at Motherboard reports that the United Kingdom is considering outlawing these sort of crime phones, right? These encryption phones. And of course, you know, first stab at any legislation like this, it's going to look pretty crazy and that it, you know, outlaws signal or whatever. But um, it looks like this is something that's seriously being considered by the government in the United Kingdom. And, um, you know, uh, as I say, there's a there's a overly broad first draft. But uh, yeah, it looks like this thing will happen. Yeah, I mean, you can see the intent of what they're trying to achieve. Like, it ought to not be a thing that you can do to sell infrastructure to criminal organisations. Like, that that seems like a thing the government should be able to make not a thing, but the technical details of what that exactly means, like, if you have a bespoke phone, as they described it, I think, in one of the passages, like... Every Linux user on the planet, you know, who's ever, you know, tried to get one of those like open source phones or worked with, like, yeah, it's but just the a, it's courts, a very slippery. The courts are pretty kinda... good at, at at sorting that stuff out, right? Like, if you look at a established company like Crypto Phone, right? You know, they do vetting on their customers and whatnot. Like, you know, if they get charged with this sort of stuff, they they can say no, our users are not criminals. These are the types of users we have. We vet them. You know, whereas if you're one of the crime phone providers and the phones keep turning up in the hands of criminals, you know, you could go to a court and say, well, look, you know. So I think, I think people tend to get a little bit too concerned. I think over legislation that looks broad like this, when ultimately the courts are the are the final sanity check on the application of the law. 
Yes, no, that, no, it does make a lot of sense, but uh, I don't know. I guess <laughs> us nerds are always very, you know, keen to look at a, a you know piece of legislation like that and, and say and, technically you know, they could and charge. throw our hands in the yeah, air yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah like yeah. how much customization do you have to do to your android before it becomes a crime phone yeah technically um, yeah. this law could see peppa pig in prison you know like yes, that's yeah, kind yeah. of the slippery slope stuff that we yes. like to do isn't yeah, it yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll see how it matures and you know you know obviously it's a thing that they want to do and maybe there's a middle ground to be found uh, where they can come up with something that's sensible and, and usable and enforceable. And yeah, we have seen things change over the last few years, right? Governments seem to be getting up to speed um, on things like, uh, you know, these crime phones and, you know, have got very good at infiltrating them and now there's, you know, moves to ban them and we've seen a lot of work around surveillance software and spyware and things like that. So, you know, and even uh, last week we spoke about the decision in New York, uh, the fines against the person who was selling that spouseware and, you know, it just feels like over the last couple of years things have certainly been moving in the right direction and uh, now the High Court in the United Kingdom has uh, greenlit a lawsuit by a couple of activists from Bahrain. Uh, FinSpy turned up on their phones in, in 2011. Uh, they've been trying to sue the government of Bahrain uh, over this and uh, they've now been given the green light. Yeah, like one of these uh, activists has been uh, in the United Kingdom since the 70s, British citizen, and you know rightfully feels like he should have some recourse against a foreign government, you know, breaking into his uh, computer and phones and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think he also got um, his home set on fire by, you know, presumably by Bahraini, you know, criminals or associates or whoever whoever else you hire to beat people up in London and set houses on fire. Yeah, knock, knock, knock. Who's there? Goons. Who? Hired goons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. That's exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be an interesting case to watch. Um, you know, that kind of intersection of you know, individual rights versus, you know, a foreign oppressive government versus, you know, spyware and, and technological mechanisms beyond the goon approach. You know, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting case to watch. Now let's talk about Vladislav Klyushin. Uh, this bloke has been convicted. He broke into some sort of service that prepared information for release uh, from, you know, publicly traded companies and used that as insider info uh, as part of a group to uh, trade for profit. This is a scam as old as time, Adam. I remember <laughs> actually doing a talk at KiwiCon in 2009 where I spoke about this type of scam because someone had hacked into, I think it was like PR Wire or PR Web, you know, one of those services where companies uh, put their press releases on timed release, right? So everything's ready to go when they're about to release market-sensitive information. And if you could get a shell there, you get to see that stuff as it enters the system but before it's released, right? So it's an ex excellent way to trade on stuff like that. But, you know, as usual, like it's pretty obvious when you're looking at the trading data who's done this. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm guessing this is how this guy got, uh, got rumbled. But yeah, I mean, these guys made 90 million bucks. But interestingly enough, he's the owner of a cybersecurity firm in Moscow called M13. And I think we may have spoken to, about this guy before, but yeah, he's, he's been busted. Yeah, this was the guy that got, I think, arrested in Switzerland and then subsequently extradited to the US. Um, and he and a bunch of other of his, you know, co-conspirators uh, have been, you know, have been charged. Uh, he's the only one that's actually been picked up. But, you know, at the very least underscores, you know, if you're a Russian 
you know, uh, a cyber criminal, maybe yeah. don't go on holiday anywhere. Maybe except. give the Swiss Alps a miss, no matter yeah. how good the snow is, right? Yeah, maybe just stick in Sochi or you know <laughs> wherever you ski in uh, ski in mother in mother Russia. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've certainly talked about a number of scams over the years that have been like this, um, you know, of this model of, of stealing data and then trading on it. Uh, so you know, old as you say, very old crime, uh, and yet uh, this guy's uh, going to go down for it. We've also seen. I mean, M13 is a you know supplier to a Russian government of cyber services and things. So that name has definitely come across our you know our, our desk a bunch of times over the years. Mm. Um, I don't know what this means when you're you know when your owner is uh, arrested in the US. That's got to be bad for business. Yeah, maybe good. Imagine, I don't know. Can't imagine it. It's great, but you know it's funny because those services that do all of the PR distribution stuff, you know, they're holding so much sensitive information. They're so easy to own. Uh, we've got a story here from the ABC here in Australia, um, based on a report from Graphica. So this this story's been uh, been everywhere, uh, but apparently someone who is pro-China, uh, peddling pro-China propaganda, is using deep-faked uh, video generated, uh, you know, uh, by AI tools to push fake news clips with, like, fake news anchors and stuff. And, uh, you know, they're, they're pushing them out there. So we're starting to see some of this stuff that we first spoke about years ago actually hitting the real world now. I mean, I don't know how effective this is as a, you know, disinformation or influence tool, but it's happening. Yeah, like these um, these videos didn't seem to have a whole heap of reach, you know, a few hundred views or something. So not particularly effective, but um, the actual overall technique of generating, you know, using AI techniques to generate fake people and have those fake people say your message perhaps is more effective than just writing down your fake messaging. Um, in this case, they are using a, like an as-a-service uh, software, I think from a, a British company, uh, to generate these videos. And it's like super cheap, right? You you know, it's like a couple hundred bucks or whatever, um, you know, software as a service, pointy clicky, make the video that you want, it spits it out. And the funny thing is one of these videos is using the like default avatar that the company uses on the <laughs> front page of its website to explain to you what its product is. Um, so like pretty low effort, TBH. Yeah, but I mean, it's not like people who are seeing this pop up as an autoplay, you know, autoplay yes. video on some trash site are going to think, oh, gee, I'm just going to quickly nip off and check uh, all yeah, of the yeah. AI yeah, of video generation tools to see if this is, you know, a default avatar and can be tied to them, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, no, but you can afford people, to be lazy with this, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, you can, right? Because people, I mean, the speed of advancement in AI and image gen and audio deep faking and blah, blah, blah is just so rapid that even, you know, us who keep tabs on this kind of stuff, you know, I'd never heard of this company. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the output's pretty good, really. And you can't expect normal people to, you know, understand even what's possible with this tech when what's possible changes every week. Yeah, yeah. And I love how, like, two of the videos that they cite as examples, in one of them there's a, you know, AI-generated male anchor who calls himself Alex. I'm guessing that's the Avatar guy, right? Yes, um, yeah, yeah. You know, he's critiquing uh, US inaction over gun violence, you know? So it's like, you know, America bad, China very good, America bad. <laughs> so it's that sort of vibe. And yeah, in another one, there's, there's like a female anchor who's touting the benefits and importance of great power cooperation between uh, the United States and China. So I love that like they've got like a bit of a grab bag there, which is to like, you know, America bad, America bad, China good. And also America and China need to be friends, okay? <laughs> Just, you know, why not? Why not? I'm sure there's some strategy oh, there. Right. Uh, another one from John Greig here. Look, this isn't anything particularly new, I guess. But 
I suppose this story marks an evolution in a thing that attackers have been doing for a long time, right? So we've we've long known that attackers would do things like geo-restrict certain attacks and payloads to make sure, you know, to minimize the chance that their payload is going to get inspected by someone who might actually be in a position to see that it's a payload. And, you know, just to, to narrow the focus of campaigns. John Greig has a write-up here about, uh, it's, a, it's a researchers from Avanan. Avanon, Avanon, a company called Avanon. Uh, so, so they found this campaign that was actually using a commercial like geotargeting tool to restrict uh, payload delivery to, or, or, you know, mix up the the landing pages based on location uh, as part of this campaign. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a technique that attackers have been using forever to complicate analysis. I and mean, I know when I worked on Canvas, you know, we had the web, the thing that would serve web exploits, you could tell it, like, these are the user agents I want to target, these are the locations, these are the, you know, so that you can attempt to uh, confound analysis or make it more complicated or even just make it less likely you end up on VirusTotal. Using a commercial service to do this, uh, in this case, a company called geotargetly.com, not a sponsored segment. <laughs> um, th- but I mean, it's natural evolution. Everyone's using software as a service in the cloud. It's a great way to get a professional, you know, good quality infrastructure. Certainly in the case of um, if you're trying to avoid, you know, having your IP addresses on, on lists of TDPs or IOCs or whatever else, using a commercial service is another great way. To do it. It's kind of like domain fronting in that respect, I suppose. Like you're, you're using their reputation and infrastructure and reliability and whatever else. Well, that's yeah. the thing because you can get like open source geo libraries, right? Yes. But this, this way, you're just using a high-quality public API and you don't need to worry about it. So I think, you know, I think this is less about getting something you can't approximate yourself and more just like it's easy, right? We're just yeah. going to we're going to see more of this sort of abuse of these type of tools as I guess it's like development culture changes if I Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, it, yeah. right? I mean in that conversation about deep fake video, right? It's an as a service thing, you sign up for a free trial, you know, and lots of places have very low usage volume, you know, free plans or whatever. And and why not, right? Why not use SendGrid and Twilio and this and Cloudflare and whatever else because they're good at what they do and you may as well. And as you say, like developer culture, you know, if you hire a kid these days to write your malware, they're probably going to write it cloud native, right? Yeah, so, exactly, right? Like this yeah. This was what, what occurred to me. So it's a, you know, a refinement of an old technique using a public service. I think, you know, there, there's risks though when you're using some legitimate service to do this, which is that they can then crush your campaign. Uh, yeah, it gives one place for you know authorities or people investigating or whoever else to go and and break that kind of chain. You know, this um, is this is one of the reasons I believe that domain fronting isn't particularly common, and you know, using TLS one point three and things like that and funneling all your C two traffic through like Azure or you know whatever is they have threat research teams and they might find it and then you've got problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to find that kind of mid tier of yeah. vendor that's good enough that their infrastructure works well, but not so good they have effective response. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now let's talk about a couple of oopsies uh, from this week. Apparently there was an incident at Reddit. Yes, uh, somebody fished a Reddit employee, uh, did two-factor bypass, logged in and had a good rummage around and helped themselves to a bunch of Reddit stuff. Uh, uh, listeners may recall that this happened... Uh, when like 2018 i think uh, they had another breach um, and there was some criticism about they were I think, using sms two-factor at that point in time for staff remote access uh, 
and Reddit at the time said that, you know, hey, we understand that we need better 2FA. Turns out they maybe didn't deploy better 2FA if they got themselves, uh, you know, passed through or whatever else. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, maybe a good reminder that, you know, U2F, YubiKeys, phishing resistant, uh, everything else, mm, it's just a matter of a little bit of extra work for the attacker. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, phishing resistant MFA is kind of table stakes at this point, right? Which is yes. yeah. unfortunate because we only just got people to start doing code-based MFA, right? <laughs> Push-based <laughs> MFA. But... You know, the world has unfortunately moved on. And, you know, we got a lot of CISOs who listen to this, and I, I believe it should be a priority item. Yeah, I, I agreed completely, right? Compromise of passwords or phishing or whatever else. You know, it's you know, it's effective, and people are going to keep using it until we make it stop working. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, as, right. as it is right now, it doesn't stop working, and, you know, the push model doesn't work when people are expecting a push, mm. which in the case they've clicked on a bad link in an email to a landing page that looks legit, that prompts for their creds, they are expecting the push. They're going to hit yes and you pass it through. Uh, so we may get, you know, obviously the web auth in approach and the, you know, more modern auth mechanisms does make this more fiddly. We have modern options that are more, you know, that are effective, but there's still a heap of stuff that doesn't use it. 100%. Uh, Namecheap also had a really embarrassing incident where their SendGrid account got popped. <laughs> And was used to send out a whole bunch of uh, yeah fake package alerts from DHL and scam emails related to crypto platform MetaMask. Another one from John Grieg at the record. But yeah, this is this is embarrassing, right? So basically, the reason you want to compromise someone's SendGrid account and send from their domain is so that you pass all the DKIM che- checks and stuff, right? So it's a, just a handy thing to have. I mean, it's not like they were targeting Namecheap. They were just targeting anyone with a decent trusted domain uh, who used SendGrid, which means, you know, if you're if you're if you have accounts with SendGrid or, you know, some of the other email distributors, protect those accounts for God's sake. Yeah, good quality creds or, you know, keep an eye on where the API keys end up. Like if it's if they're ending up in Git repositories because you've got applications that programmatically send mail, understanding where those repos are, understanding how you manage credentials like that. Even a simple question of how would I change my SendGrid API keys? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just assumed that they fished access to this, but I suppose it could be a, you know, compromised API key, right? Yeah, I mean, anything gets the job done. Yeah. Now, this next one's funny because Booking.com customers are getting scam emails purporting to be from Booking.com. I don't think we're quite sure where the data that has enabled this campaign has come from yet. But I can say as a Booking.com customer, that website sends you so many emails (laughs) <laughs> that I cannot imagine that this campaign is succeeding at all because like if you're a booking.com customer, you have learned to ignore their emails like about four <laughs> weeks after becoming a customer because it's just yes. amazing the frequency <laughs> with which they spam you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean this is a you know, this is a good effort by whoever's doing it. This they've got access to booking.com like reservations data and are then sending um both email and other media. We saw reports of like WhatsApp messages purporting to be from a hotel that you've made a booking.com booking with, with the correct dates and things, either asking you to reconfirm your reservation by entering a credit card number or asking for, you know, trying to upsell things like parking, which is then going to put you through the payment flow and steal your cards and so on. Um, and yeah, also having used booking.com, like the whole site just is such a, you know, overwhelming mess of things that it's trying to milk you for that, 
getting a thousand emails from them trying to sell you more things or whatever is just like normal user experience. Yeah, and you um, just ignore it, right? So. And you ignore it, which is good. But obviously, you know, if you're traveling and you know they they have a lure that seems time critical or whatever else, then you know people will get victimized by it. But um, Booking.com is saying that nothing bad has ever happened, um, despite there being evidence of you know reddit threads and whatever talking about this kinds of these kinds of scam using legit booking.com booking data going back to like 2018 yeah it's been going on for five years and i love this because this is a dan gooden story from ars technica uh and when he asked some questions about this their response started with at booking.com security and the data protection of our customers and accommodation partners is a top priority so there you go they take security very seriously they do take it nothing very to seriously. see here but i mean look the fact is this is one of those systems where that data is going out to a bunch of different places right so it would be kind of hard to pin down where it's coming from yeah, I mean, and the whole like travel booking ecosystem is such a mess of people and systems and automation uh, and partners and all sorts of things. And we, you know, we've seen compromises in the past of uh, you know some of the centralized plumbing for this kind of thing, like Amadeus and Sabre, and you know, and various providers. And it, you know, it's just I imagine very hard to have any you know, travel booking information not end up going past a compromise point at some point because there's just so much data everywhere and someone, you know, people are interested in it and, it's, you know, you can monetize it so many ways. So I don't know what you do about it because people still need to travel and still need to book stuff and I guess this is just uh, the price you pay for that convenience. <laughs> now, now look, this one, this story, Adam, I actually didn't find interesting. It was Catalan who convinced me that this one is actually is actually cool, right? Uh, which is a V8 exploit for a game. Uh, talk us through this one because it is it is actually kind of cool. Yeah, it is. It is actually kind of cool. So uh, uh, Valve makes the game Dota Two, a very popular online uh, multiplayer battle game, uh, and the user interface components for the game are built using HTML and, and CSS and, and JavaScript, so that. You know, a it's easy for developers. B they don't have to make up all of their own like UI and and layout and all those kinds of complicated bits of plumbing. And they use open source uh, V8, the JavaScript engine, as part of Chromium. That's part of Chromium in the game uh, to implement that. I mean, many games use web based tech, you know, because it's such so ubiquitous and easy to work with and so on and so forth. Uh, all of the browser exploits you see going past, you know, every week when your browser needs updating, they generally all apply to these embedded browser components inside other bits of software, not just games, but I mean, games are one of the big users of it. Um, so you know, typically they apply, but the use case may not make sense or the sources of content may not be, you know, untrustable or malicious. Or yeah, exactly. Right? Like was, It's not like a messaging application where there's, you know, potentially malicious data coming from everywhere. It's a game. Yeah. It's a menu system for God's sakes. Come on. Yeah, exactly. And in, in this particular case, Dodo uses V8 and all of the JavaScript that gets ingested and parsed and executed by V8 in this context came from Valve. Or at least it did when the game was published ten years ago. Now there's an active, you know, kind of modding and plugin and different game modes and blah 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 scene to extend the game and keep it alive, which of course Valve is very much in favour of. Uh, and somebody had published, had basically had, had found a way to reach the code path in V8 where you could trigger one of these many browser exploits and then uploaded to Steam. Uh, like a game mode or a mod or whatever else um, that would reach that code path in a way that they could control. And then subsequently, if people are using this, you know, kind of extended add-on game mode, you could lead to code exec. Um, 
Now, downloading game mods in general, you know, is often code execution. But in the case of Dota, right, the attacker or the the, the code that doesn't come from Valve is typically running like it's Lua, I think, in this case. So it's kind of in a sandbox with a controlled set of APIs and you know, whether there's bugs in that or not, you know, who knows. Uh, but yeah, someone f- figured out a way or built a specific mechanism to get to code exec via this mechanism and then got it past Valve's kind of moderation and testing, got it published on Steam and and off you go, which seems like a lot of work given this how many is, other this things. This is the thing, right? Like, man, that's a lot of work to get a few gamer shells, right? But we've spoken about this before, about people who do game hacks like yes. are better than they know. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you were like, it depends on the motivation. Like if the thing is you're trying to hack some particular Twitch streamer, then maybe this is, you know, what it takes to get there and and do the job. And I mean, if you're just trying to make money, obviously there's easier ways to do it on the internet than this. But if you have some other motivation, or as you say, you're just a, you know, the world that you learned this stuff in was game cheats and mods or, you know, Xboxes or, you know, whatever, like those other scenes that aren't corp infosec or trad hacking like we think about it, mm. then maybe this just makes total sense. Um, and I, you know, I know uh, on my gaming rig, like I didn't even log into my Google account on that thing. Like I log into Steam and nothing else on the assumption that every piece of software I get from from Steam or wherever else and every game mod and every plugin and every other thing you get from a, you know, mod store is, is terrible shell giving trash yeah and that's just kind of what you have to do and, and no one reasonably expects a gamer to have that kind of level of no of course not you know I, this mouse, just right? reeks of someone <laughs> who plays the game who wants to be able to is this a network multiplayer game yes yeah very much so and, and competitive as well very competitive yeah yeah so it's someone who just wants to be able to say to someone they don't like come on let's play using this mod or mode you know yeah, you can get then, it on steam here and then they shell them and nuke their yeah. box or whatever right like that yeah, that's yeah, what this feels like that's I, I agree that is what it feels like uh, you know, and that's a lot of work scene wars in game scenes that you know <laughs> that look like <laughs> that good. yeah the underground still exists perhaps or you should be happy about this well sociopathic gaming nerds still exist <laughs> I think is, is the thing right god imagine going to all that effort just to just to be able to win a beef you know yeah <laughs> Uh, the Daily Swig, which is, uh, you know, Port Swigger's uh, blog media outlet, um, they have published like their list of their top 10 hacking techniques of 2022. Uh, the Daily Swig has a write-up about this and uh, OAuth, OAuth techniques um, were the top of the list, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, and this this particular collection of web hacking techniques that, that Port Swigger publishes is always a super important read if you're yeah. in the web app, you know, modern web systems testing business. Uh, and I mean, no I, I don't mind pushing their barrow. Let's just no, put it no, that exactly, way, right? right? Like they do it's great just work. They, they always they always pump out interesting stuff. Yeah, and it's no surprise that the number one spot here, which is a you know a bunch of like chained together OAuth techniques, like is from a security consultancy rather than you know something else. And I, honestly, yeah, I think if you're in the web testing business, this list is probably required reading because I mean they're always way out at the edge of what's possible and what's interesting and some of these bugs are proper and fa- impactful uh, like mm. one of the posts um, talks about cache poisoning the entire of Akamai through a bunch of techniques chained together like that's 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 big deal yeah. um, and then like you know oh yeah there's just some you know really practical useful but also novel techniques uh, in this list so uh, absolutely worth a read 
Final story uh, is a write-up from Tonya Riley at Cyberscoop. We don't really have time to talk about this, but this is something that we've spoken about on the show previously, which was the IRS's decision a couple of years back to use um, ID.me as an identity service and all of the baggage and issues that came with that. And, you know, there's a write-up here from from Tonya just looking at where that's at now, right? Because the IRS announced, hey, we're going to find a replacement for this system. They're still kind of nowhere with it. And it goes back to what you and I spoke about at the time, which is doing this stuff yourself is a non-starter. So you're pretty much limited to industry options and there are many of them, right? So, you know, back to square one, basically, is yeah, what I got yeah. from from reading this. How about you? Yeah, there was also at the time uh, we talked about login.gov, which is the kind of like centralized US government mechanism for authenticating people for government services. And, you know, that has moved glacially and not very well uh, and is still not in a position uh, that uh, the IRS could use that as an option, which is why they're still stuck using commercial ones. And I don't know what it's like in Australia. Like we in New Zealand, we had a, we have a like government, central government built identity management solution. And it's, it's not great. Oh TBH. man, our stuff is awful. Like, yeah. so the really weird thing in Australia is our federal government, like, you know, citizen facing systems are awful. Like they are properly <laughs> horrible. You can tell that they're running on an IBM mainframe somewhere, right? Like they're, yeah. they're bad. Um, yeah. But then the yeah. state government, like in New South Wales, like it's my understanding that all of the services New South Wales stuff is actually run on Salesforce and it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, because you know, the government in New South Wales, it's a conservative government, basically uh, full of ex-bankers who understand service delivery, right? So they run it like a bank, which means you've got branches for government service that are actually quite efficiently run and you've got awesome <laughs> apps and all that sort of stuff. And the federal stuff is just so, so bad. So I have a feeling that there's going to be a modernization project eventually on this stuff. But you know, how do you effectively authenticate an identity online and in the case of id.me they use things like biometrics and that they're a private company so that's going to make people very concerned when they're giving this sort of information to a you know to a company um so you know this is just a very interesting issue and tonya's got a great great write-up uh, for CyberScoop, and i've linked to it in this week's show notes and people can go read it but adam that is actually it uh for this week's show thank you so much for joining uh me to have this conversation it's always great and we'll do it all again next week yeah, thanks, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Haroon Mir, the founder of Thinks to Canary. Uh, they make hardware honeypots, uh, which are, you know, fantastic. And, a, you know, you, you, you put them on your land. They're not externally facing honeypots, you put them on your land when people interact with them, you know you've got a problem. Uh, and they have this great SaaS backend for them. I think you can do on-prem too if you really want to. Uh, and they also operate the free service canarytokens.org. So if you're a regular listener, uh, you, you probably know who Thinkstar, but yes. Thinkst has released a credit card canary and uh, InfoSec social media absolutely lost its collective mind uh, over, over this when it happened a few weeks ago because, yeah, it's a cool idea. And in this interview, Haroon is going to tell you all about him. Here he is. Like most good ideas, it's perfectly obvious in retrospect. The logic is we give you a valid working credit card with a zero balance on it. And we let you know the moment somebody tries that credit card. Um, and, and so the logic is you'd store it wherever you're storing your credit cards, wherever you've got your, your database. And, and typically what happens is uh, if an attacker compromises it, they steal all of this credit card data. And at some point, they've got to test that that card's working or they've got to use that credit card. And so like most good Canary tokens, what it does is it lets you know really early 
that something bad is happening. Um, and it's super easy to implement. It's just not functionality that was pushed down to everyone. Like, like there's talk that, that banks have had versions of this that they've used internally or, or credit card issuers have had. But this way, everyone gets to use it and everyone gets that heads up uh, when things are going bad. Yeah, so if you're running an e-commerce store, you insert this into the, you know, database or whatever. Um, I mean, you know, attackers can still steal things. If you've, you know, done the wrong thing with logging, there might be cards in the logs or whatever, and it's not going to show up there. But point is, if someone goes after your main, you know, store of credit card information and they happen to run this card, then you know for a fact that that card's been exposed. And exactly you can start right. rolling incident response. Yeah, exactly right. And, and so it ends up being super low cost to deploy. Like all Canary tokens, it self-identifies. So you take it and you drop one in in the customer DB, in backup DB on staging one. And when that card goes off, you essentially get a message telling you, look, the card that was left on staging just got run. And, and so you immediately know that there's your problem. You need to go figure out uh, what's going wrong there. Um, so super easy to deploy, super high uh, fidelity alerting and just works. Um, so we can, and, and there's an interesting uh, side benefit to it. So, so Jacob, who, who built this token, uh, ended up giving a talk on it at uh, ShmooCon. And, and he's wrapped it around uh, a buzzword because, yes, it's a buzzword, um, called conspicuous deception. So, so when we built Canary in general, we expected that Canary would catch attackers, um, and or we hoped it would, and and empirically it does. But what we didn't expect was the messages that we get back from attackers saying, "Now that I know that Canary or Canary tokens are deployed, I'm really afraid to touch anything." And yeah. and one of the early people who said it was uh, your friend Shops. Um, and, and he's got this magnificent tweet that says, like, now with Canary tokens, any creds that I find on an engagement, I'm scared to touch because maybe it's a Canary token. And and we had uh, a ridiculous... I mean, there's two, there's two that make people nervous. There's Canary tokens and formally, not so much these days, but Duo Push used to make people nervous sure, as well because like... they'd run some creds and they get it. Oh, you know, you've just done a Duo Push notification. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, damn it. Like, and and uh, we had a... Super... Although these days, people are so used to getting duo push notifications that eventually they just smash they just, anyway. So yeah, that's kind of a redundant yes. one. But <laughs> but they're still scared of canaries. That's good. Yeah, and I guess, look, I, I see where you're going with this, which is that eventually thieves might be put in a position where they're scared to do... Where they're scared to test cards before they're ready to pull the trigger on fraudulent transactions. Well, well that's the super interesting thing, right? Like, if you start... Uh, so, so for example, any enterprising thief or anyone who's smart enough says, well, okay, how many credit card bins can Canary Tokens be handing out? So if they go to, to canarytokens.org, issue themselves a few cards, you'll quickly see the bins that we're handing out. And then they'll say, okay, if you've got a credit card dump, grab these bins out of it. Because you well, know, I mean, that, I was literally going to ask that. I'm like, are they a predictable, you know, well, credit card number? And I guess you're saying within a range, yes. So it's certainly going to give you a range because that's the vendor that we're dealing with. But we think that in itself is interesting because what we're hoping is more credit card vendors or more issuing vendors then talk to us and say, hey, listen, here's a set of our bins. Give these out Man, as Canadian yeah, cards I, also. I had not thought of that, but that's absolutely right, which is that if you get all of the card issuers exactly. behind this, 
Except then it's in their interests, isn't it? It's to actually abs- participate and actually get this stuff because then attackers don't want to touch those those Absolutely ranges of cards. Right. It becomes super in their interest where attackers say, listen, let's get those cards out of the dump because they're probably going to get us rumbled. And it works for them, it works for it works for the consumers. And and literally it it's that thing that says, we'll happily say, here's our bins, because that's what the net result is going to be it's going to catch the people who don't check and the people who do check are going to remove those credit cards from their dumps proactively protecting users um it's a super win and 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 that's where the conspicuous deception the the win by telling people that you're doing this actually ends up protecting the herd um and yeah, yeah we, we well, think look, it I- works <laughs> I, I had a uh, phone call with uh, Adam Boileau uh, earlier today. We just had some stuff we had to talk about. And um, I, I mentioned, I'm like, hey, later on, I'm, I'm chatting with Haroon. He's like, oh, yeah, the credit card stuff. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, the plan is where we're going to talk about that. And he just said, man, could you imagine how many meetings he would have had to have sat through to, you know, get into a position where he could actually issue these numbers? And, you know, that... Uh, I, I'm with him. That's an interesting part of this story that I think you haven't really talked about. I mean, I've read the blog post and, you know, yeah, a lot yeah. of the Twitter commentary and stuff, but how on earth did you go and convince <laughs> an organization? Because <laughs> you would have had to have, have had the cooperation of like an issuing bank or a card brand. Like, you know, it, did you become did you become the bank of Thinkst or are you working <laughs> with a bank? It's, like, it's, how on earth did this happen? Yeah, it's, it's so fortunately, uh, Jacob Torrey shouldered much of the burden with this and has been going up and down with really big card issuers for a really long time. And and I think one of the fortunate things is that uh, financial services, like over the last while, they have been more progressive people pop up. But but I can tell you that even big players, like like we had gone pretty far down the line with Stripe, like, like Stripe, a reasonable player for this. Uh, Jacob had all the approvals. They had gone through legal, like legal had approved it. Um, and, and he went up and down with them for months. And and then literally weeks before the release, like we built on the API and weeks before the release, I think Stripe did layoff. So things went into a downturn and they just said, look, we can't support this anymore. Like we can't make this happen. And and so there was a fair amount of pain uh for that sort of stuff. And we're still going through a bunch of pain with it because like the, the issuer that we launched with, so we launched with one issuer and, and they've got... Uh, and, and who is it? Um, so so currently our cards are Amex and, and we're using, uh, we're using a, a back-end API, third-party API um, called Extend. And, and we bump into rate limits after a few thousand cards. I noticed that I saw, I saw this thing's been so popular that you keep smashing into the rate limit and people can't get them at the moment. But We, uh, yeah. we bump into the rate limit so insanely. Um, the other day we, we tried to up our limit and, and we pushed the change and then thought it didn't work because we tested again and it wasn't working. And what had happened is a thousand cards were issued in the time we went live and, and then uh, checked again. So it's super popular, but we are talking. Um, so so there's two other banks uh, issuing providers that are really popular names that I don't want to mention yet, but but we're currently in talks with them uh, to get broader card coverage so that we'll also have Amex and Visa cards. So, on so there. you're actually you're actually dealing with the card brands, not like issuing banks. Um, uh, no, so so in both cases, uh, in in the two cases that we're currently talking with, we're talking with uh, banks that are big enough to have influence over the brands, 
And and so yeah. what's helped here is is lots of the banks these days issue uh, they've got a name for it where they have consumer cards. So so they give you a Mastercard as a risky business, and then risky business can issue sub cards to everyone in their company. So they're perfectly configured for it already. Somebody just needs to say, hey, this is probably okay and uh, risk is taken care of. Now, look, look, how do you then go about plumbing a transaction into a canary alert? Because that's another part that, of this where I'm like, that's going to require some cooperation from someone who's not you, you know, from someone <laughs> in that whole financial soup supply chain. So yeah. how, how does the process work? I, oh. I, I'm guessing it's some sort of... It's some sort of notification, what, through the API or like... Yeah, how, how exactly it right. It, it, in the end, it works. It ends up working out reasonably simply. And, and the thing that, that's unexpected with, with us for Canary and Canary tokens in general is we've ended up with this really comfortable pipeline for leave a thing, a thing happens, reliably get an alert. Like, like if you consider even like the AWS token, it's like leave a thing, AWS has a notification somewhere get this alert back to the customer uh, through something Yeah, so reliable. this is stuff you're experienced in, and, right? And, and like, so now, is taking a signal that you need to sort of customize the way that you handle it in some way and get that into your workflow and your pipeline and exactly this is something right. you can do. Yeah, and, yeah. That becomes, and, and that becomes a hidden benefit of the system is like for almost anything that you do with the Canary token, like someone can jury rig it themselves. But do they know when it's down? Like, do they know when it stopped alerting because somebody switched yep. off the notifier? And and right now it's like, nope, you drop this. It's like a brick. It's reliable. It goes off. You get your alert. And and so, yeah, like for the most part, it ends up just plugging into the system and working. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess now you're doing the charm of And look, there's a lot of people in finance who listen to this, right? And I'm sure they're right. all over this interview because this thing has picked up a lot of buzz. Um, so I guess who is it that you want to talk to? Do you want to talk to issuing banks? Is that is that the, uh, yeah. the group of people that you're trying to cozy up to? I'm sure there's some fraud people listening to this who are like, we'll probably drop you an email. Yeah, so so lots of people who listen to it ping to say, you know, we've been trying to convince the banks forever. And and like part of the reason we released and, and did the talk is like, it works, it's good for everyone, it's good for the ecosystem. It's specifically good for the banks that actually have it released. Like I say, their bins get uh, ignore listed and and maybe they get early heads up uh, on fraudulent transactions. So yeah, if, if they are playing in that space, Drop us an email, um, research at things.com, harun at things.com, hit us up on Twitter. We'll, we'd love to pull their cards in. Oh, they issue us with a bunch of cards and we can, we can sub-issue them. We'll work see, I just them. realized that BIN, I remember now, stands for bank bank identification number, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah see? that's right. And here I am asking, are you working with the brands or whatever? <laughs> and it's been right there the whole time because you're using an acronym from outside our sorry. You know, different acronyms. So, right? Sorry, my bad. Yeah, so 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 anyone with, with a set of BINs, uh, just drop us an email. We'll, we'd love to chat yeah. to them. Um, we think it's good I for mean, really, everyone. I mean, really what you want to be, where you want to be as a bank, is when someone goes to canarytokens.org and sets one of these things up and they hit that drop-down menu that says select which bank, you want to be in that drop-down menu because that is the bin that gets excluded from the pile of things you're about to do evil. The exactly pile of numbers right. you're about to run fraudulent charges on, right? Exactly right. You get, you get the early notification of it and uh, hopefully you get ignored. Um, that's the yeah. place you want to be. Um, that's the hope. And and so far, it's been pretty popular. Like we've seen it used in enough interesting places. It's it's genuinely. Have you had, have you had one that... fire like fire in anger yet? 
Um, because so, I know it's only like a week old, but yeah. You know. So 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 as silly as it sounds, we almost deliberately never watch uh, customer alerts like that. Um, so so we wait for uh, getting feedback from customers going, "Hey, this saved my life," um, and we haven't uh, we haven't heard that uh, yet. But I suspect it'll start trickling in. So it's literally been live for a week. Um, yeah. So far, we've heard uh, this is cool. We've placed it here. Uh, when we get the first hey the saved my life we'll we'll post it let me know let me know so I can mention <laughs> it on the show alright Haroon Mia uh, always a pleasure to chat to you my friend it's always great uh, really interesting work uh, that you and the team at Thinkst have been doing so yeah thanks for joining us to fill us in on that and yeah if you work for a bank you know get in touch with the team at Thinkst bye always cool that was Haroon Mir from Thinkst Canary there, and you can find them at canary.tools. Big thanks to Thinkst for being a forever sponsor of the Risky Business Podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks, you guys. Uh, their stuff is great too, so you should absolutely go buy some. Uh, and it's you know surprisingly affordable for security gear. You know, you can you can afford Thinkst stuff without selling a kidney, so that's nice. Uh, anyway, that is it for this week's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business Podcast in the Risky Biz News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.